All right, the divine electrolux, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. You're going to need to pay very careful attention to figure this one out. And anybody who's under the age of 40, you'll probably have to ask one of the old fogies later what an electrolux is. But um, that's the only clue I'm going to give. Well, I'll tell you, an electrolux is a vacuum cleaner. That much, you know, I've given this message a few times and realized I have to explain these things now to people. They don't know what it is. So anyway. I want to talk to you about uh, an extraordinarily important passage, Romans 3, 21 through 26. From the ancient world, we have more than 15,000 letters that have come down to us from the Greco-Roman world. And of those 15,000 plus letters, Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, is far and away the most influential of all of them. John Calvin prefaced his commentary on Romans with this statement. If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. Why is it so important? A hundred years ago, Sandy and Hedlam, who were two great commentators, British scholars who worked on Romans, said this, if it is a historical fact that the spiritual revivals of Christendom have been associated with closer study of the Bible, this would be true in an eminent degree of the epistle to the Romans. In other words, what they were essentially saying was, if there's revival, Romans is at the core of it throughout the last 2,000 years. It's that important of a letter. And I think it's still true to this day that it's, it's so important. One might be tempted to say that without Romans, there is no true revival. It's been the cornerstone both of revivals and of reformations, of conversions, of callings. It's been that which marked men and started movements. St. Augustine, Luther, whose birthday is just around the corner, November 10th. Uh, Calvin, Wesley, Bart, all were never cured from uh, being infected with Romans. And Luther went so far as to say that this epistle is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Luther started the Reformation because he was teaching Romans in the little town of Wittenberg in East Germany. He was teaching it for 18 months, and he would teach it every Monday and Friday from uh, 6 to about 9 in the morning, I believe. Uh, and uh, there, he got to get more and more students to be taking this because he was a professor at the University of Wittenberg. And during that time, the first published Greek New Testament came out on a printing press by a fellow named Erasmus in 1516. March 1st it came out. I was there. I remember the day very clearly. <laughs> and um, some have said that the Reformation never would have been born if Luther did not have the Greek New Testament in his hands. Because he loved Romans so much and because he got into it in Greek rather than just the Latin translation, he saw things that he had never seen before, that we have the great heritage of the reformers before us uh, that help us to understand Romans that much better. Leon Morris uh, was a a scholar who uh, died recently. He was Australian, got his doctorate at Cambridge, very godly man. And he said this paragraph is possibly the single most important paragraph ever written. 
Why is Romans so important? Why is this passage so important? In a word, salvation. Romans is the clearest presentation of the gospel in the New Testament. You've probably heard of the Roman road where you take someone through Romans and show them the gospels. Gospel tells us that God moved heaven and earth to bring us that salvation in a way that you and I will never fully fathom. Just think about this. The Godhead, the Trinity, was ripped apart when the Son of God, the second person, was crucified on that Roman torture device. In those last three hours of darkness, was God the Father turning his back on his Son. How can God do that? The immutable God who cannot change, who is always and forever loving himself and expressing that love in creation towards human beings, how could he turn his back on his own son and pour his wrath out on his son? Sufficient wrath that is enough to pay for all the sins of all humanity for all time. Poured out on Jesus Christ. The crucifixion is a picture of the suffering and pain that our Lord went through. The only time in the Gospels that he ever called God his God and only God rather than God and Father or something like that was when he was on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time that he treated God as his judge rather than his father. Why did God do this to his own son? Because he loves you and me. And the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Paul's letter to the Romans tells us this in no uncertain terms. This paragraph, this one paragraph, there's so many scholars I could quote from, but I think I'd rather... Uh, get into Romans rather than what everybody else says about it. Well, in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul rails against humanity. We saw that in chapter 1. He describes heaven's view of our condition. All of us, every single one of us, is a totally depraved sinner, and we have zero chance of gaining eternal life on our own merits. So, what's the problem we're facing? The problem is this. God is holy. God is perfect. And we are anything but... So what chance do we have of gaining eternal life? In Romans 3, Paul says, no one does good, not even one. No one seeks out God, not even one. In Ephesians 2, he says, all of us were spiritually dead because of sin. That means that we were not responsive to anything outside the realm of sin. And that's the devastating reality of our spiritual condition before God. It's not that we were drowning and we could reach out for that life preserver and sort of help save ourselves. No, we were dead. And dead man can't respond. God had to make us alive spiritually in order to save us, but he couldn't save us uh, without making us alive, and he couldn't make us alive without saving us. And those two things had to happen simultaneously. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, there are two good men. One is dead, and the other is not yet born. So because we are utterly sinful, and because God is utterly holy, what chance do we have of gaining eternal life? What chance do we have to ever stand in God's presence without being condemned? 
Remember I told you the first lecture that this was the issue that Paul was addressing, that these Jewish Christians who were saying, Paul, you've capitulated on the gospel. You, you, you let these Gentiles get away without having to follow the food laws and circumcision. And he's saying, you have no clue what God's holiness standard is. It is so far beyond your capacity to understand or even to accomplish. Let me tell you what the gospel really is. You can't add to it, period. Jesus Christ had to pay it all because that's the only way you can ever get into God's presence. So the answer to the question, what chance do we ever have to stand in God's presence without being condemned, is at the heart of Romans, and it's found right here. And Paul speaks in crystal clear terms of our wonderful salvation. And yet, what's remarkable in this very passage, this key passage for all of Romans, is that salvation is not only not the driving force of Romans, it's not the driving force of this key passage, which is all about salvation. But that's not the main thing it's about. As, as much as we may revere the Apostle Paul today, in his own time, he was constantly defending himself in his gospel. And as important as our salvation was to Paul, he valued, and get this, he valued the honor and the holiness of God even more. That was more important to him than the salvation of anyone. For Paul, vindicating God's righteousness was every bit as important as demonstrating his grace especially because his accusers assumed that Paul had capitulated on the former in order to promote the latter. In this passage, in these six verses, God's righteousness is seen in every single verse, and only in one of them do you not have a cognate of the word righteous in it, and yet it's very clearly seen there. Verse 21 speaks of the righteousness of God. Verse 22, the righteousness of God. Verse 23 is the only one that doesn't speak of righteousness in those terms, but speaks of God's glory, which means the presence of God in all of his holiness and righteousness, is what Paul's saying. For all have fallen short, or for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God or of God's glory. That's his righteousness, his holiness. Verse 24, being freely justified, or more literally, being freely declared righteous. Verse 25, his righteousness. Verse 26, his righteousness. All the way through here, Paul is speaking of God's righteousness, and that's the theme that we need to understand. So I want us to take a look at verse 21, and I am hoping and praying that by the time we get done with this message on Romans 3, that you have a far deeper appreciation for your salvation, for what it cost our holy God to provide it for us, and that your heart will spring forth in unbelievable gratitude to God for what he's done. The vindication of God's righteousness is what permeates this section. God's righteousness is chief on Paul's mind all the way through here. He goes to great lengths to make clear that his gospel in no way undermines his holiness and in no way winks at sin. And that's his response to certain Jewish Christians, as I said, who thought that Paul was soft on sin. Paul turns his tables on his accusers. He says his, his gospel cannot stand unless God is holy and righteous and true. Not only this, but the cross, this is important for all of us to clearly get, the cross is not a lowering of God's standard one iota. It's the demonstration of God's righteousness that the Old Testament was pointing to and looking toward, but never really quite achieved it. It was done only on the basis of the promise of the death of the Messiah. Okay, let's take a look at these verses 
one verse at a time. We're going to do almost a, a word-by-word exposition of this. And the translation, I think I... Do I give you the translation in the outline? I do. Okay, so this is my own translation. It's not uh, the uh, ESV or the Net Bible. I was a consultant for both of those and a consultant for a couple of other translations, but this is my, my own. Um, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, even though it is witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul starts, and all I'm going to do is underline the key words and kind of explain it to you. When he says, but now, he's giving us a decisive break. The cross is the central point of all of human history. There, there was a, a German scholar who wrote a, a commentary on Luke's gospel, and he gave it the wonderful German name, Die Zeit, the middle of time, the center point of all of human history is the cross. Everything up to that moment points to Christ's death on the cross, and everything after that moment points back to it. It's the most significant event with the resurrection in all of history. Everything changes in God's dealings with humanity in the cross. I just got an email from a Jewish man today who said um, he wanted to start a dialogue. It was fascinating. I just got just minutes before I came to the church tonight. He said, I'd like to start a dialogue with you. I think we have a lot of the same views, uh, but I don't think Jesus is the Messiah, so can I be saved if I don't believe in that? Here's a person who is kind of close to getting under conviction. The very fact that he'd ask a Christian professor about that tells me something. So I want to be winsome in how I approach this. He's, he's, he's close, and I want to I asked for the Lord for wisdom on how to deal with it, but I didn't have enough time to even give a response earlier. But the answer to that very clearly is no, you cannot be saved without faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says that this happened apart from the law. And it's very interesting that he says the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, but it is witnessed by the law and by the prophets. Well, this apart from the law means that the righteousness of God that Paul is talking about was not accomplished by the law. The Old Testament law had a sacrificial system, and those sacrifices uh, had to be offered year after year and day after day, pointing toward the time when a final, ultimate, once-for-all sacrifice would be made, uh, the uh, Yom Kippur sacrifice, the Day of Atonement sacrifice that Jesus Christ really is. Obedience to the law could not save because nobody could obey it perfectly. So they constantly had to be practicing the sacrifices. Paul then speaks here about the righteousness of God, and I take it that what he means here is the righteousness which comes from God. The Reformers called this an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own, but it's imputed to us, it's assigned to us. It's as if a judge says, you have been declared innocent, I'm declaring you righteous, even though you're guilty. And now because I've declared you righteous, you are therefore righteous or innocent. We'll wrestle with how that works out here in a few minutes. But it's, it's a righteousness that's not inherently our own. Therefore, salvation is something that inherently we can never brag about. We can never say, you know, God saved me, but I helped a little bit, you know. It's just not how it works, because this is a completely alien righteousness. It can't be obtained through the law, And because God is holy and we are not, we must be clothed with his righteousness if we're ever to stand in his presence. His righteousness 
must be imputed to us. This righteousness, it says, has been revealed. That means that it's, it's now come at last. It was witnessed by the law and the prophets, but it's revealed it's come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so even though it is witnessed by the law and the prophets, this is the apart from the law righteousness of God that is nevertheless attested by the law. God's righteousness is now disclosed in the cross, and yet this righteousness is not foreign to the Old Testament. Paul is walking a tightrope here, and we need to do the same thing. He, he wants to say that the Old Testament pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah. He believes in the Messianic uh, uh, Old Testament passages, the Psalms and Isaiah and other texts. And so he says the Old Testament could speak about the coming of the Messiah and God's righteousness uh, coming in the, uh, uh, the, the proper time. And yet, the Old Testament itself could not offer this righteousness in its fullness. It had to wait for something that was coming later. So it's not foreign to the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's known by the Old Testament, but it wasn't accessible through the law. It's kind of like uh, what Paul does in Romans 7 when he speaks about what the law can and cannot do. That's a famous passage where he says, I do the very things that I hate, I hate the very things I do. It's just... Uh, he's very conflicted in whether Paul is speaking of uh, himself or someone else or speaking nationally or speaking before his uh, conversion. Those are all very difficult issues. But the basic thing that we need to understand there is here's what Paul's view of the law was. He says the law is holy and good and righteous, but it can't save. It's like a mirror. You put up a mirror, you see yourself in the morning, and you say, oh, my goodness, that's, that's, that's harsh. It's not what I wanted to wake up with. Um, it can reveal how sinful we are, but it can't fix the problem. So does the law cause us to be sinful? No, but it does reveal who we are. The law also can reveal that there is a coming one, Jesus Christ. Verse 22, Paul goes on and he says, namely the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a little different translation that you've not seen before. It probably has through, the, through faith in Jesus Christ, doesn't it, in the ESV? And I, I know the translators of the ESV, good people. I just I disagree with them on this one. And I'm not the only one. I'm, 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 not, I'm not being a maverick out here. I'm giving you some views that uh, more and more New Testament scholars are coming to. Uh, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Well, this righteousness of God is now defined, and here's how it has been revealed. It has come through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. As I said, most modern translations have through faith in Jesus Christ. The Net Bible, the New English translation, has the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The King James Bible punted. They weren't sure if it was faith in Christ or faithfulness of Christ, so they called it the faith of Christ which doesn't mean anything. It's just, we're not sure what it is, so we'll leave it so that no English reader can figure it out. And, and uh, so they punted on that one. But I'm going to give you some reasons for why I think faithfulness of Jesus Christ is the meaning here. At bottom, though, let me just point out what, what's at stake. Both sides would regard the object of our faith to be Jesus Christ himself. Uh, and so, in that sense, it's not that big of an issue. However, those who consider the faithfulness of Christ as the meaning here also see something else in this text. They see the focus on what Christ accomplished 
more than on what we must do to be saved. If it's faith in Jesus Christ, it's putting a focus on ourselves. If it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, it's putting the focus on him. And I think that fits better with what Paul is saying in this, in this very passage. So let me give you, real quickly, three arguments. First of all, the Greek word that's used here can mean either faith or faithfulness. In fact, it's the same word that's used in Galatians 5.22 when Paul, Paul speaks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Faithfulness is the word. Same exact word. It's used, secondly, a few verses earlier in the same chapter, Romans chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul speaks of the faithfulness of God. He doesn't, say the fa- he doesn't say faith in God. It can't mean that there. He says, what then? If some did not believe, does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Uh, and the answer to the question is, no, of course not. But if he meant, does their unbelief nullify faith in God? Well, their unbelief is the lack of faith in God. So it would be the same thing. So... Obviously, that can't possibly be the meaning. And the third argument is that if the phrase in Greek here in verse 22 means faith in Christ, then we have kind of a redundancy. You've got through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Well, of course it's for all who believe because it's faith in Christ. Why would Paul need to add for all who believe if he's already just said that basic point? So, taking this as faithfulness of Christ shows that God's righteousness is not soft on sin. And here's the point that I see here, and I I think everyone who, whether they take it as faith in Christ or faithfulness of Christ, recognizes this. I just think the point is that this is what Paul is stressing here. Jesus Christ himself had to be perfectly faithful to the Old Testament law. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, the unblemished lamb who could be slaughtered on our behalf. He had to be unblemished. He had to be perfectly obedient to the law. Because his faithfulness had to cover our unfaithfulness. So I understand verse 22 to be saying this. The righteousness of God has become available because of Christ's faithfulness to the Old Testament law. He's the perfect Passover lamb who died in our place. He fulfilled the law in its moral precepts and its prophecies, all that the law looked forward to. And because the object of our faith was perfectly faithful to God, both in his life and his death, He is worthy of our faith. If I put my faith in an object that is not worthy of it, it's not going to do a whole lot of good. But because of Jesus Christ, who was 100% faithful to God, because he's the object of my faith, now my faith in Christ is a well-placed object. He's worthy of our faith. And our faith in him, therefore, saves us. Does that make sense to you? Whether it does or not, I, I hope this is at least helpful to think about. If you... Uh, are we? Is there an audio tape of this, Bob? You doing that? Even then, it's good. what's that? Okay, that's fine. Um, there's a there's a, a note on this in the Net Bible. The Net Bible is the first translation ever beta tested on the internet, and we had over a million people make comments on it. Uh, it was also, uh, it, it's got more footnotes in it than any other Bible in history, over 60,000 footnotes. You can download the whole thing for free off the internet. Just go to Bible.org and find the Net Bible. It stands for New English Translation and Net as an in internet. Um, but uh, it, it gives, 
it's got these things called SNs or study notes that explain why it gives a translation that it does in a place like this. And it talks about other translations, and it'll say the ESV and the NIV go in this direction. We think this is probably right. Here's the reasons why. These are things that we're not absolutely sure of, but we're, you know, the basic contours of Scripture we can be very certain about. Some of these things, it just requires some uh, interpretive issues, and we try to deal with these humbly, but also in light of the evidence that is out there. So a major implication that I want to say about for all who believe is this. It's not so much how much you believe that gets you saved, but whom you believe that gets you saved. I used to give an illustration, and I'll, I'll give it now, about two men standing at a great chasm. One of them is facing a, a superhighway going over this, this uh, canyon, and uh, the other one is facing an old rickety bridge going over the same canyon. 600-foot drop-off to their death if they, if, if they fall or the bridge doesn't hold them. The one man who's right in front of the superhighway is not at all convinced that this bridge is going to hold him. Well, I, that's maybe a little bit too strong. He's not real convinced it's going to hold him. So he gets out on his knees and crawls on his hands and knees across the bridge. But there's Mack trucks driving by. There's no problem. It holds him. His faith was weak, but it was strong enough to actually get onto the bridge, and he had the right object of faith. The other man gets on the rickety bridge. He's very confident, yeah, this is the right bridge. It's going to hold my weight, and he takes about three or four steps, and then it breaks, and he plunges to his death. It doesn't matter how much faith we have if the object of that faith is wrong. It's not going to save us. It doesn't matter how little we have, uh, faith we have if the object of that faith is right, as long as we have enough faith to step onto that bridge rather than make it a theoretical thing and say, yeah, I believe that can hold me, but I'm not going to risk it. So I gave this illustration to a group of Cub Scouts. Years ago, we had a Christian Cub Scout group uh, as part of our church, and uh, they asked me to give devotions to these kids, so I, I tell the story. I said, guys, you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And, you know, they're eight years old. They, this is, that bridge is, they, they're thinking a little bit too concretely. So we start going hiking. We're in the woods. We come across this old, rickety, wooden bridge. And it's right over some water. Dr. Wallace, is, is this the bridge we can put our faith in, or is it the one we can't? And I said, Lord, you've got such a cruel sense of humor. <laughs> And I said, men, this is the right bridge. Follow me. And it actually held, believe it or not. <laughs> I, I wasn't at all sure if that was going to happen. <laughs> but I, I'm thinking, Lord, you've got to make this hold for these kids. <laughs> all right. For there's no distinction. What Paul was saying here is that the rules are the same for all of us. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, man or woman, born in Afghanistan, born in America, born into a Christian family or not, uh, if your life has been devoted to doing good for others or you've been a drug dealer, there's not a single work that you can do, no status you can have that can get you one iota closer to heaven. Because God is a holy God and he can't stand even the tiniest of sins in his presence. To put this in, in, in a perspective. It's kind of like if we're standing, say, here in Portland, and we want to get to New York City. 
Well, you've got maybe a, a, an Olympian at the long jump, and he says, I'm going to get there by doing a long jump. I'm going to do it in just one jump. Well, he may be able to jump a whole lot farther than all of us in the room put together just about, but he's not going to get any closer to New York City that really counts. But if you put your butt on a plane and fly there, you'll get there. So it, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your status is. It doesn't matter if you were born in a Christian home. Uh, people that think they've done good their whole lives, that's going to get them saved. There's no work we can do that gets us one iota closer to heaven. And the only way we can gain eternal life is if Christ's faithfulness is applied to us. That's the only way that can happen. Now, another way to think about this is there's not a, a single thing I can do that's going to get myself saved. A, a single thing that I can do. I'm not talking about putting faith in Christ. That's the one thing, but it's really accepting the gift that he has given to you. There's not one thing I can do to get myself saved, and there's not a single thing I can do to keep myself saved. It's all of God. And the problem that especially those who grow up in Christian homes have is sometimes they feel like, okay, I've got to be Christian plus. Some of them feel like, well, I have the right to heaven because my parents are Christians. Others feel guilty and say, I haven't lived that good of a life. I've got to put my faith in Christ, and I have to do other things to get saved. Both of those are, are unbiblical attitudes. Well, Paul goes on in verse 23, and he says, this is one of these well-known and really abused verses in Scripture. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. The first thing I want to ask is, who, who are the all here? Well, theologically, we could certainly argue it's, it's all humanity. Everybody who's ever lived has sinned. That is true, but that's not the all that Paul has in mind in this passage. And I'll try to demonstrate that here in just a minute. Paul has just defined the all in verse 22 as all who believe. The same all are almost surely in view, uh, surely, uh, in view here as well. So it's as if Paul is saying, for there is no distinction for all who believe, for all who have believed are those who have sinned. Now, Paul is not saying if you haven't put your faith in Christ, you're not a sinner. He's just not addressing those people. He's saying the all who believe are the all who have sinned. And it's important, I think, to make this point. Because he goes on in verse 24 and he says, being freely justified by his grace. Who are those who are freely justified by his grace? It's the all who have sinned. If the all who have sinned are all humanity, all, all people, then all humanity has been freely justified by his grace, which means that God has declared every person righteous whether they've put their faith in Christ or not. Does that make sense? The all who have sinned, if this is every single person in the world, all these same people have been freely justified. That means that God has declared that person to be innocent of all charges. And if that's the case, whether they put their faith in Christ or not, then we've got what's called universalism, which is not what the Bible teaches, that everyone gets saved. But if the all who have sinned are the all who have believed, in verse 22, then they are the ones who have been freely justified by his grace. That means all believers are freely justified. And there's, a, there's an important point for us to wrestle with as we look at this. Okay, so I know that was confusing, but let's go on and confuse you some more. 
So there's, there's two verbs here I want you to notice uh, in verse 23. All have sinned. It's a past tense verb. It's an aorist in Greek. And it's really summarizing our whole life as one big blob of sin, if you will. But fall short is not past tense. And uh, when I teach Romans, I, I have my students translate the passage that we're covering for the day. And uh, a couple years ago, one student took on verse 23, and he said, For all have sinned and have fallen short of God's glory. And I said, you've fallen short of a proper translation. That's not what this says. It's, it's important for you to catch this. In the past, all of us have sinned. It's one big blob of sin. That's how God views our accomplishments. In the present, you and I, speaking to believers here in verse 23, still fall short of God's glory. All of us who are believers in Jesus Christ right now are falling short of his glory. In other words, our life is not matching what our status is. Our status is being saved, but our lives are falling short of that. God's glory is referring to his, his righteousness and presence with him in heaven. In Romans 5.2, Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's heaven, if you will. It's God's holiness, holy presence that we will someday have. And when Adam uh, was in the Garden of Eden, he had this. He had the glory of God, and then he lost it. That's what's restored in Christ. So Paul is setting up a significant tension. And this apostle loves to mess with our minds all the time. He loves to come up with paradoxes and ways for us to think about things. That's why he's been considered one of the great intellectual giants of the first century, because he thought through things so deeply. And uh, uh, he's, he's definitely the second person I want to visit when I get to heaven. I know this is a side note, but I've got to, I've got to tell you this just a second. I've got a very, very good friend whose health has been so bad for so many years that I've been preparing for a long time to do his funeral. He's just in his 40s. And this man breathes Christ. He was one of my students, and I've learned more from him than I'm sure he ever learned from me. One of the things that he tells me often is, you know, I've thought a lot about the day I die and when I meet the Lord for the first time face to face. I'm not sure what I want to say to him, but I know what I don't want to say to him. Hey, Jesus, it's good to connect a name with a face. <laughs> That's how we often treat the Lord, though, isn't it? Well, Paul sets up this significant tension those who believe in Christ are those who have sinned and those who still fall short of the glory of God. So how can we get saved? He just loves to mess with our minds, but it's because he wants us to have a breakthrough in understanding this great theological point, which we get in verse 24. While being freely justified by his grace, for all who have sinned are still falling short of the glory of God while being freely justified. This must not mean just every sinner then, but must be the all who believed in verse 22. While being freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. James Edwards is a scholar in this neck of the woods who wrote an excellent commentary on Romans 
And he sums up the significance of this text this way. In all of Scripture, there's probably no verse which captures the essence of Christianity better than this one. Here is the heart of the gospel, the mighty nevertheless, the momentous divine reversal. Everything in verse 23 was due to humanity. Everything in verse 24 depends on God. Now, verse 24 starts off with a participle in Greek, and I apologize for giving you a Greek lesson, but this text is so rich that I I want to dwell on some of these things uh, because of it. It's not a new sentence, and translations that mark it out as a new sentence are doing so because if they don't make it a new sentence, they've got a theological problem on their hands, I think. But really, the best way to treat this is as a dependent clause, a subordinate clause to the preceding. While being is telling us that this happens while something else happens. And the something else is what verse 23 says, for all have sinned and are continually falling short of God's glory, while being justified. So as I've said several times already, but this is new for many of you, and I don't mind reiterating, the implication is that those who are justified freely are the all of verse 23. If the all of verse 23 were sinners, that is all sinners, then everyone would be justified, everyone would be saved. And if that were the case, then salvation would be universal regardless of what one believes. But Paul has already restricted it to believers. It stands in direct contradiction to the testimony of the New Testament, to Paul, to what Peter says in Acts 4, there's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved. And um, in Romans chapter 9, Paul starts out by saying, I could pray that I could be accursed if it would save but one of my fellow kinsmen. What he's essentially saying is, if it were possible for me to go to hell for all of eternity, if that would save just one of my fellow Jews, I would do it. That's an incredible amount of love uh, for his fellow Jews. And it's a text that tells us we have to do missionary endeavor. If, if, if Paul believed in universalism, that everybody ultimately gets saved, why would he even say something like that? Why do we ever send missionaries out in the first place unless not everyone gets saved? We send them out because we want to bring the gospel to them so that they will come to faith in Jesus Christ. If I get on a bus that's headed towards San Francisco and sincerely believe with all my heart that it's going to San Diego, no amount of faith is going to alter my destination. Faith in faith is worthless. And this is the thing that I think is the problem with for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Too often they put that stress on faith as if to say faith in faith is what saves. But it's the object of that faith that really is what saves us. Okay. So Paul goes on and he says, while being freely justified. This is all part of this participle in Greek. And this is a key term for Paul. This is a great passage for us to understand what he means by it. Roman Catholics and Protestants are divided over this issue of what justification means. Catholicism regards justification to be imparted righteousness. That is, that God actually imparts his righteousness to you so that you are now, in some pragmatic sense, some real literal sense now in terms of your actions, a righteous person. 
Protestants take it to mean imputed righteousness. The difference is really quite important. If it's imparted, then God makes us righteous. Now, ultimately, all of us agree, God will make us righteous. At some point in the future, namely when we uh, get to heaven, God will make us righteous because sin cannot be in God's presence. So we will be righteous completely, 100% at that point. But if it's imputed, then God is declaring us to be righteous. If it's imparted, then there is no assurance of salvation since God does not make us righteous immediately. If you put your faith in Christ and you say, okay, I'm justified, well, it's a long process, which is the case in Catholicism, they don't have assurance of salvation. They don't know when they will be saved or if they will be saved because it's not a a statement that happens, a declarative statement at the beginning. But if it's imputed righteousness, there is indeed assurance of salvation since the legal declaration of our righteousness is the divine statement about our status, not about our practice. Now, I'm going to try to illustrate this with the very illustration that the uh, the word redemption comes from, and I think you'll understand it when I get there. So, to justify here must mean to declare righteous, not to make righteous. And the reason is, is straightforward. The all who believe, that we saw in verse 22, are also the all who have sinned and continue to fall short of the glory of God, verse 23. And those who fall short are also those who are justified while they are falling short. How is it possible for us to be made righteous while we're falling short? That can't happen. If we're falling short, we're falling short. But to be declared righteous, completely declared righteous, as a past fact, God has declared you and me as righteous, even though we are falling short, that must mean that it's a declaration of our status, not of our character yet. It can only mean that God declares us righteous before him. Our continual falling short of God's glory means that he has not made us righteous completely yet. But he can declare us righteous even while we're falling short. Anything that speaks of imperfect obedience or hints that we can add even one iota to the finished work of Christ mitigates Paul's argument and is a denial of the gospel. For the only way that God can declare the ungodly to be righteous is that there must be a final perfect substitute for our sins. While being freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, well, just in case you didn't get the point, Paul stresses it with three different terms here. He clarifies it by saying we are justified freely by his grace, which comes through the redemption that is in Christ. Freely and by his grace tell us that God is not paying us back for anything. What he is doing is giving us a gift that he does not owe us. He's not paying us back for our goodness at all. He's giving us a gift that we don't deserve. And that gift is the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Now, this particular word, I think, is what's really key here. It's a word that comes from the slave market. When a person was redeemed, he was set free from his slavery. And it was done by a purchase, which in this case was Christ's sacrifice. So if I set a slave free, I don't immediately change his character, but I do immediately change his status, right? I purchase you, you're a slave, I've purchased you, I've set you free. Your status is now changed. Anybody seen Django Unchained? You probably don't want to admit it because it's a pretty rough film. Um, how about Trading Places? You ever see Trading Places back in the 80s? You could say, yeah, back in my carnal days, I saw that. Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. Um, 
Eddie Murphy is trading places with this Wall Street uh, mogul, young, young buck who's making his money uh, uh, in uh, the stock market. And Eddie Murphy is put in this guy's home, and um, he starts stealing things out of this home that is now his home. And the guys who put him there, all a big kind of an experiment, said, you don't, you don't need to steal because you'd just be stealing from yourself. His status was changed overnight. He was no longer a, a peddler, a thief on the streets. Now he's a rich guy, and he's stealing from himself. His status changed, but his character did not. So he continues to steal. It takes him some while to realize, oh, I really am well off. I don't need to steal from myself anymore. That's how it is with you and me. When we get declared righteous, our status has permanently changed. But it does take time for our character to catch up with it. But it does, ultimately. The language of verse 24 speaks eloquently of this fact. Further, Paul has just gone to great lengths to show that we are sinners who simply can't please God by our own efforts. If all our righteousness is as filthy rags, then how can anyone add to the work of Christ on the cross? This is one of the most precious truths in all of Scripture, and that's why James Edwards speaks so eloquently of this verse. When we are saved, God first and foremost changes our status. He doesn't leave us there, but that's what he does first. He looks at the shed blood of Christ, and he regards his death as the perfect work, the perfect sacrifice that covered all of our sins, past, present, and future. We're justified, to use Paul's language, even while we're sinners, even while we're continually falling short of God's glory. In other words, our salvation does not depend on our works. I'm, I'm ringing the same bell many times over. I hope you're, you're getting this. There is no work we can do to get ourselves saved and no work we can do to keep ourselves saved. We are declared righteous before God, our judge, because Jesus Christ has stepped up and paid the price for us. And this redemption is in Christ Jesus. The whole reason that God does not condemn us is because we are in Christ. It's not that he doesn't condemn anybody. He does not condemn those who are in Christ. At the very beginning of chapter 8, Paul is going to make this crystal clear. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. That's a, a remarkable statement. We come before God as our judge, and in the existential crisis that each one of us has, we recognize our sinfulness, and we put our trust in Jesus Christ. The Lord is both our advocate, and he's the one who redeems us with his own blood. God pronounces the judgment, not guilty. And when the trial is finished, he takes off his judge's mantle and adopts us into his own family. We become his because we're in Christ. That's this rich imagery that Paul has. He uses a courtroom scene. He uses the, the temple uh, motif, which we're going to see especially in the very next verse. And he sees Jesus Christ as the one who, who paid the sacrifice for us. Gosh, this is a, it's, it's a great text to think about. Verse 25, whom God publicly displayed at his death as the mercy seat. This is probably not found in the ESV. Mercy seat, they probably have propitiation or atoning sacrifice or something like that. Accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. Well, what I think is really significant here is that God has publicly displayed 
Jesus Christ as the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the place where only the high priest could go into the, the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, and they would, in later times, they would actually tie a rope around his waist just in case he faltered and maybe somebody did something wrong and if he gets struck dead, who gets to go in and get the body? They, they can't go in there. Only one high priest allowed a year. And uh, so uh, he was not to make any mistakes. And at the death of Jesus Christ, we read in the Gospels that the temple curtain tore from top to bottom. This was a 15-foot-tall curtain, six inches thick. And the very fact that it tore from top to bottom means even Arnold Schwarzenegger did not do it. It's 15 feet high. Uh, God did this. And you've got this priest who is sacrificing a lamb at that very time because they were doing it on that day as well as on the day before. That's, that's another thing. But um, this priest looks in there and, my gosh, he sees the mercy seat exposed, publicly displayed, and I'm sure this guy is just freaking out. Uh, it's in the Greek someplace. It says that, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> God is doing this in a very symbolic way to tell us what's actually happened in the, in the court of heaven, the temple of heaven. That Jesus Christ has now made access to God permanent for all of us. This is why the Reformers could speak of you and me as believer priests. And why Peter could speak of us as a kingdom of priests. Because there is no longer any intermediary between us and God. We have direct access to him. This is, this is just incredible stuff. And Paul goes on and says, This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. Well, this demonstrates his righteousness. Notice Paul is still concerned about that. Here he's indicating that the death of Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system and what it was ultimately pointing to. He's the perfect sacrifice that the Day of Atonement looked forward to. The Old Testament sacrifices technically, really, could not pay for sins at all. And the author of Hebrews says so. All they could do was point to the one who would. And so it's kind of like a promissory note saying, at some point, somebody's going to come and be the final sacrifice. The author of Hebrews wrote, The law possesses a shadow of the good things to come, but not the reality itself, and is therefore completely unable by the same sacrifices offered continually, year after year, to perfect those who come to worship. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Old Testament sacrifices, in other words, were like a broom. They swept everything under the, under the carpet for centuries. Year after year, you get the Yom Kippur sacrifice. It doesn't, uh, the blood of a lamb really doesn't pay for anyone's sins, but it promised, it looked forward to the time when a human being could pay for those sins. You sweep it under the carpet year after year, century after century. The cross of Jesus Christ is like a vacuum cleaner, like an Electrolux. It takes all of the dirt away permanently. This is how God could pass over the sins previously committed and do so in a righteous way. Well, in the Old Testament, sins were overlooked, but ultimately they are dealt with in the cross of Christ. And so we get finally to verse 26. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just 
even while justifying the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. Again, that's a bit of an unusual tra- uh, translation. But the basic point here that I want to stress is this. Every single one of us in this room has skeletons in our closet, things in our past that we wish we had never done. These things can haunt us. They can paralyze us. You can't relive the past. But what we can do is embrace God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He's paid for all of our sins, and he paid for all of them before you and I were ever born. All of our past sins were future when Jesus Christ died on that cross. And all of our future sins that we're going to commit were future as well. And yet, all of them were paid for by him. Until you and I really believe that, we will never be free. Free to be ourselves, free to live life to the fullest, free to serve the Lord. And so let me, I've I've gone over time again, sorry about that, because we had the Q&A and good food, and I'm not going to give excuses. Um, I, I just, I went over time. So tomorrow morning, I know you've got a nursery going on. I'll make sure to be within the clock. Twelve minutes for the sermon, right? That's all I have? Okay. Let me give you a conclusion. Five points. God is not angry with his children. We are not waiting for his wrath to fall on us for the other shoe to drop because God's wrath falls only on those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so you should not be afraid that God is going to punish you if you are a believer. But you may well need to be concerned that he will discipline you. And yet... You know that if he's going to do that, he's going to do it because he loves you, and it's because it's the best thing for you. Secondly, it's not faith alone that saves us, but it's faith alone in Christ alone that saves. Third, until we realize that we contribute nothing to our salvation, we cannot have assurance of that salvation. All of us, I believe, have what's called eternal security, This is the truth that you and I, if we truly put our faith in Christ, cannot lose that salvation. But whether we appreciate that, whether we have that that sense of assurance is a different matter. And that comes when we realize we can't contribute a thing to our salvation. In other words, even those who don't believe in eternal security are still eternally secure. The sad thing is they don't ever get to enjoy uh, knowing that because of their theology. Fourth, is this license to sin or is it freedom to live for God? And Paul actually answers that in chapters 6, 7, and 8, which we won't look at tonight. Just chapter 8 tomorrow. And finally, until we are more concerned about God's reputation than our own, we will be of little use to him. In this very passage where Paul talks about how wonderful our salvation is, he is jealous to vindicate God's righteousness. That's the driving force. And you and I get the benefit of a very clear exposition of what it means to be saved. Let's close in prayer, shall we? We will never fully grasp it, Lord. We will learn for all of eternity. We will never plumb the depths of the marvels of what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done for us. But with Paul, because he said that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us, 
We pray that we can believe that with him, that it will change our lives, and that especially we will embrace fully that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone has paid the price. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you.